If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 will be in verses 1 through 11. This week it's on uh, page 974 in the Black Bibles you'll see nearby. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those to follow along with where we are at. Um, and if you don't have a, a good Bible at home, you're welcome to keep those as well. We have, we have more. Uh, we replace those when they disappear, so help yourself. Um, so chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the series we're calling it Centered, and the idea is that we are trying to ask ourselves, what is our compass point and what directs us in life? Like when everything goes crazy in your world, uh, what, what is the foundation that's left? What tells you which way is up and which way to go? And Paul's argument in Galatians is that should be Jesus. That should be the gospel, the good news of God for us in the person of Jesus, right? So we've all lived through those kinds of experiences where, where we don't know what to do next. We don't know what's up. We don't know where we are. And Christ is what centers us. This week, we're calling it Father-Centered. The idea is that our unique relationship with God as Father is, is just huge, and it changes everything. It's a game-changer for us. Uh, we might wonder if we have purpose. We might wonder if we're accepted. And we have both of those in the Father, in God as our Father. So let's read verses 1 through 11. And just a couple of housekeeping things, too. Next week, I will not be with you. I will miss you dearly. I'm going to be preaching at our sister church that we're helping to plant right now in Kempner in the Coppers Cove area watershed. So please pray for me. Continue to pray for them. Uh, so I'll be guest preaching over there. And then a local church planter from Hill Country Presbyterian is going to be over here. The assistant pastor is going to be here, uh, and he's preparing to plant a church in Albuquerque, so he'll share a little bit uh, about his church plant with you, give you opportunity to pray for him and support that. Um, so make sure you're here next week, because he's really a better preacher than I am, so you'll enjoy having him here. That'll be uh, Adam Viramontes, so we're looking forward to having Adam with us. He was supposed to be with us like a couple of months ago and broke his foot, had a freak accident. And we had to uh, bring a sub in. But anyway, he'll be here with us this week, um, coming up, uh, finishing this part of Galatians, and we'll come back to Galatians in the new year, uh, but we'll spend time in December thinking about Advent, um, remembering who Christ is this time of year, talking about everything that Jesus brings uh, when he came uh, at uh, the first coming in the first century. So, okay, back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, the, the one that inherits, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, we need prayer. This could be like four sermons today, so I'm, I'm just praying right now that God would help us to focus this morning. So pray along with me as I ask God to teach us. God, we pray for your help today. We, th we thank you for your word, and it's 
uh, so rich and there's so much going on in this text, we ask that you would help us, that your spirit would, would come here and help us to have open minds, um, have open hearts, that we would be receptive to you. God, what do you want to say to us? Help us to have that posture. I pray that for myself, I pray that for all of us here, uh, that we would be open to who you are, we would be open to what you have to say in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, several of the leaders, a large group of the leaders from the church got to go to a church leadership conference up in Dallas, and we had a great time. It was very encouraging, and one of the themes that kept coming up throughout the conference was trying to remind us, as those who lead others, uh, to remember our posture as sons and daughters of God, to remember that we're children of God, that he's a good father. Um, And there was this great host we had. It was a pastor from uh, New Jersey, and he's planting a church in a really rough inner city part of New Jersey. Crime-ridden, horrible crime statistics, a lot of murders, a lot of issues. And so, you know, that that kind of flavored how he spoke. Um, That kind of flavored what he talked about in his time of, of leading us. And he was trying to, again, encourage us that the Father loves us. But he began sharing an illustration that made those of us uh, that grew up in the suburbs kind of squirm, right? Like we, we started to get uh, a little nervous and like, what is he saying? That's really strange. You know, like it was kind of like upsetting and disturbing and, and seemed at some level inappropriate. He was just talking about the Father's love and then he just started talking about this incredibly violent, uh, scary, bloody, gory movie as an example of the Father's love for us. <laughs> we were like... This is making me uncomfortable, right? Like, my stomach's getting kind of tight, you know. And his point was, in this movie that's a violent action movie, his point was that the Father hasn't abandoned us, but the Father is pursuing us. And nothing is going to get in his way. Now, I'd argue that the movie he shared was not the best illustration for that because it was a little bloody and disgusting and horrible, right? But, but his big idea is still, is still just as scandalous. The God of the universe is chasing after us because he loves us. After he realized that he was kind of freaking us out with his illustration, he said, well, just think of finding Nemo then. Maybe that's a better, maybe that's a better illustration. Okay, that's a little cleaner. This father that's paying a great price to pursue his child because he loves him. And that's the kind of relationship we have with the God of the universe. He loves us and he's pursuing us. And it cost him greatly. And so I just want us to think about, regardless of the illustration or favorite movie or song or whatever you might think, it's funny because that same week we sang a song about God as Father, and it was funny to interact with some of the group, like half of us loved it and half of us hated it, right? So we have different preferences for how that's expressed, but let's, let's think today about the truth behind those artistic expressions. Here's a God who is in love with us. And whether you had a great father or you had no father at all, the real father, the father that Ephesians says every every family in in the world is named because of this father being the real father, he, he is what fatherhood is supposed to look like. And he is good and he wants to challenge us and he wants to grow us and he wants to shape us, but he also deeply, deeply delights in us. And I hope that's scandalous to you. I hope that's mind blowing to you. I hope that that just rocks your world. God loves us. And we can relate to him as a father. And so that's what the text is about. And as I said before, there's so much in here. There's stuff we're going to, you're going to feel like we're kind of skipping over here, but I'm going to try to give us the main ideas, kind of the main chunks of what we're looking for. Uh, The first thing that we see is is we look at the first three verses, verses one through three, is that we all should 
long for sonship. So sonship is a way, kind of a simple one-word description of this adoption as sons that's described in the text, right? We have this status as children of God that's gifted to us. We didn't earn it. Uh, We were rebellious. We were sinful. We walked away from God, and God pursued us in love and made us His children by faith in Him, by trusting in what He's accomplished through Christ. And so we should all long for that sonship, that maturity. Sonship and adoption of sons has kind of a maturity concept built into the first century. Um, We always think of adoption in our culture as uh, you adopt this baby, right? You take this child and he's given a new birth certificate and he's placed in your family. And that's definitely part of what the scripture's saying. But also there's this status of sons that a son would achieve as an heir that came at a certain age, right? And so we would think of it more as like a status of adulthood in our culture. Um, there's just certain things your kids can't do, right? Your kids can't go buy a car or buy a house. You know, I mean, just, they can't negotiate property. They don't have full rights as adults. Uh, so kind of take that concept and combine that with an inheritance concept of you're giving all my, I'm giving all my property to my son, right? Um, combine all that together, and that's what Paul's talking about here, this maturity we grow into the full status as sons. So look at verse 1. He says, I mean that, a, that the heir, the one that's going to inherit all the good stuff, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So think about this. Um, if your dad's the richest man in the world, but you're 10, you kind of own all that, but you kind of don't yet, right? And that's what he's saying is, is the relationship here. So the heir is basically functionally a slave when he's still a child, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul here is, is talking to Galatians, right, that didn't grow up under the Old Testament codes of law, right? So they weren't under the guardianship of the law and the specific Mosaic covenant sense and the sense of Deuteronomy and Exodus and everything, all the details there, right? They were pagans that grew up outside of the Jewish people. But what he's doing is he's applying this general principle of the Jewish people who were under the law were basically just like slaves, right? And the only way to inherit that full sonship status, it wasn't enough to grow up under the law and then just turn 16 or just turn 21, right? You had to grow up under the law and then trust in what Christ had done for you. Paul again and again throughout the whole book of Galatians has said, it's not enough to be a Jew, right? To apply that to our context, we might say, it's not enough to be uh, born into a nice Christian family. You have to trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you were born into. It doesn't matter what kind of family you had. It doesn't matter whether your earthly father abandoned you or loved you or what happened. You have to trust what Christ has done for you. And so even if you grew up in this really healthy religious climate or in this context, if you grew up in the strictness of the Jewish religious observance, right? Even those people, Paul's you know, talking to, to pagan Galatians, saying, comparing them to the Jewish people, he's saying, even if you grew up with all that, you were still like a slave and only Christ could get you out of that. Only Christ could bring you maturity. And so if you grew up over here, wrong side of the tracks, and you know Christ, you're given the full status as a son. And if you grow up over here, the right side of the tracks with all the religious regulations, you're still not a son until you trust in Christ. So the full status of sonship comes through Christ. And all of us should long for that, even if we grew up in a religious environment. 
even if we grew up in what seems like the right side of the tracks, that's still not enough. So he's talking to the kids that grew up on the wrong side of the track, saying, don't envy the kids that grew up on the right side of the track, because we all need Jesus. We all need Christ. That's the only way to inherit this sonship. We should all long for this sonship no matter how we grew up. You know what happens is sometimes those of us that grew up in a troubled home, we think, if I had just grown up in that healthy home, I'd be fine. No, you'd still be a sinner, right? You'd still be a sinner. You might have more money, you might have a nicer car, but you'd still be a sinner. And so if you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, don't envy being under the law. And if you grew up under the law, don't stay under the law. Recognize that either way you need sonship through Christ. Long for the sonship. And he explains it with this weird word. In the text, it's elementary principles. Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We're not sure which we he's talking about. Paul's a Jew. He's talking to non-Jews. I think because of the way the logic progresses, again, he's saying we're all kind of the same. Even if we grew up under the law or if we grew up under uh, pagan idolatry, it's kind of the same thing. And we're going to see this really more clearly at the end of our text. But let me define elementary principles. Elementary principles of this word, kind of like atoms, um, they had ideas of things like in the ancient world, they would say the elements are air, fire, water, and earth. Have you all ever heard this before in like your basic philosophy or world history class? Um, and then even some philosophers had more of like what we would call a modern atom theory. Um, there's a lot of different theories out there, right, about the basic particles of the universe. You know, we're learning more and more. Any of you ever studied quantum, quantum physics, uh, quarks, uh, string theory, right? I, I read this stuff, and it's really fascinating for a little while, and then I realize they don't really know what the heck they're talking about, right? And you're like, this, they're just making stuff up, you know? I mean, uh, I have a picture here I found of a chart of uh, graviton and high-energy impact atomic window penetrated rotation of atom. I don't, I don't even know what this means, really. It's some sort of atom chart. And I just use this to show you uh, that we have all kinds of representations, scientifically, of what we believe the basic elementary principles of the world are. And that's going to vary by tribe, uh, by scientific discipline. It's going to vary by time and history, right? I remember this moment in time, uh, my junior year in high school, I was taking chemistry, and my teacher just nonchalantly revealed that that kind of satellite image of the atom that we all grew up with, right, where it's got the nucleus and the electrons, she was like, oh, yeah, that's not really what it looks like at all. <laughs> I was just shocked. I was like, I'm, just, I'm quitting school. This is stupid. <laughs> like, I'm just giving up. I've been taught this for years, this chart, you know, and the thing circles around the other thing, and apparently it's all wrong. So anyway, uh, if I have any chemists here, you can, you can straighten me out afterwards. But It's a general graphical representation, and I say all that to say, again, depending on your discipline, depending on how far into the rabbit hole you've gone with the scientific study, we have different understandings of what the elementary principles actually are. And in the New Testament world, or in the first century world, they had a big overlap with the spirits and the powers, right? And what's fascinating is it's it's kind of the same thing now, right? Like if you're a scientist... If you're a naturalist and you believe really deeply in progress and science, you believe that these mechanics and these physical particles are what make the world work. And if you grow up some other place, you think it's the spirit that's in the trees or in the flowers. And you know what? Those things kind of overlap. And Paul is using the phrase in both terms. In the first century, the phrase was used both ways. The phrase was used to mean 
the stuff, earth, air, fire, water, elements, atoms, and it was also used to represent the spirits of this world, the, the idols. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians are actually demons, spiritual forces behind things. And so we have both the scientific worldview and the non-scientific worldview, and you realize, oh, they're all kind of the same thing. There's this just general idea of how the world works, and we're all trying to figure it out through trial and error. Some of us may be more sophisticated. Some of us maybe have bigger microscopes. But we're all just kind of fumbling along trying to figure out how the world works. And Paul says, you know what? That's great to figure out how the world works, but you're still ultimately enslaved to your own personal sin problem. And it goes much deeper than figuring out how the world works. And even if you figure out how the world works and you give all your energy to serving these elementary principles, you can talk scientifically about it and say, I'm going to give all my heart to serving these true scientific things that make the world work. Or you're willing to be more mysterious and religious about it. I'm going to give all my energy and all my heart to serving these spiritual forces that run the world. Paul says those are kind of the same thing. And both of those are being under a law. Both of those are saying, I can attain a salvation, I can make my life work by figuring out how the world works, and I can look and observe and figure out how the world works, and I'll start doing those things, right? Just go to any bookstore and go to the self-help section. Any of you ever, you don't have to raise your hand, because some of you might be proud of this and some of you might be embarrassed, but you know, have self-help books. I've bought some self-help books before. You're proud, it's all right, yeah. Um, <laughs> self-help books are fine. I mean, some of the stuff Dr. Phil says is okay, right? But... There comes a point where there's all, this, there's all this practical stuff out there about how to make the world work, right? Science, nutrition, self-help, psychology. The problem is we, we can't do it. We can't do it. The problem is us. The problem is not knowing what to do because we all know stuff to do and we're not doing it, right? Like how many of you are obeying all the stuff you know for sure is true about the world? Yeah, we're not, we're not really doing it all. We always know more than we actually do. And that's the problem with living under the law. The law says, this is what you should do. And we say, okay, I'll just do that and everything will be fine. But we have this sin problem. It's this spiritual problem, this brokenness inside of our heart. And so I want to challenge you, whether you're a happy legalist, right? And you think you're keeping the rules of religion. Or you're a happy pagan and you think pleasure is enough. I want to challenge you to long for true sonship, to recognizing that, that no matter what category we fall into, there are basic elementary principles of the world, there's basic ways that the world works, and those things work if you, if you try them. A lot of times, you know, there's a lot of good advice out there that can help us, but we have a much deeper problem that requires the work of God on our behalf. And the only way to grow up into our sonship is through being gifted that status through Christ. And, and that's now what Paul is going to talk about in the next section. So the next section, he starts talking about then the experience of it. How do we get it? If you, if you begin to see the crack in your worldview, if you begin to see that pleasure is not enough, if you begin to see that your religious uh, law-keeping is not enough, if you begin to realize that you can't get yourself all the way there, you're longing for sonship, then the experience of sonship is granted through Christ exclusively. The, the story of Jesus is the story that makes this work. Verses 4 through 7 says it this way, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So again, Paul's talking about the historical 
experience and relating that to our personal experience. We talked about that some last week. So Paul talks about historically there were these people named the Jews and God rescued them out of slavery and then he gave them a law and they lived under that law covenant and then Jesus came and there's a transition in covenants. Paul's saying historically this unfolded, but also in our own life this unfolds as well. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you have this experience of I'm living, kind of trying to do it myself, and then I recognize that I can't do it myself and I need help from the outside. What Luther talked about as he said alien righteousness, that doesn't mean Martian righteousness, but it means external righteousness, right? So it's this theological term of alien, it means outsider righteousness, because I don't have a righteousness of my own, I need a righteousness that God gives me from the outside, and that comes through Christ. And so Paul's describing this, Christ came at just the right time, he was born under the law, he fulfilled the law for us, he was perfect, so we recognize, I see the way the world works, I see these laws, I agree with this morality, I see how things should be. Christ comes along and He actually does it. He actually lives how all of us wish we would live. Christ is as brave as all of us wish we were. He's as beautiful as all of us wish we were. He's as loving as all of us wish that we actually were. And He fulfills the law for us. So the story of Christianity is this substitution idea that Jesus both lives the righteousness we should have lived, but also dies the death that we deserve to die. And so there's an exchange he, he absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. He gives us His own righteousness. So we're given the status as sons. So the mechanics of it are what Jesus did. His life, death, resurrection. That's, that's how it unfolds. He says in verse 5, He was uh, born of woman, born of the law. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So again, redeeming those who are under the law, specifically with the Mosaic Covenant, there was an actual covenant, right, where God adopted this people and He gives the covenant to Moses. And you can read about this in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. And you can read about these covenants that were made where the people said, yeah, we see that you're good and you're the God of the universe and you've saved us. So we'll do everything you say. And if we don't fulfill the covenant, these curses will come upon us. Um, and so they're agreeing to do what's right and agreeing that if they don't do what's right, curses will come upon them. And you know what? Those curses came upon Jesus. And, and so... There are those uh, in this time that grew up under those mosaic regulations, the regulations of Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and they said explicitly we know the curses should come upon us if we don't perfectly fulfill the covenant. And then there's those that didn't grow up under that agreement, but Romans 1 says all of us that didn't grow up under that agreement, we still know God is there, and we haven't lived up to our just internal creaturely agreement of being creatures of the Creator. So, so Paul in Romans 1 says, really, we're all guilty of this both universal law of just knowing God is there, but we're not honoring Him, and the very specific, explicit laws of the Old Testament, right? So Jesus came and fulfilled those laws for us. We're all guilty. Romans 1 says, we're all guilty. If uh, you say that you don't think God is there, Romans 1 says you're lying and suppress the truth. Um, I, I hate to say that to you because I don't like to insult people, but that's what Romans 1 says. Romans 1 says, if you look out at the world and say God doesn't exist, you're suppressing the truth. And that's a dangerous position because the more you suppress the truth, the more you begin to live within your own lie, and the more you begin to be, believe your own lie. And so whether you grew up agreeing with it, God's there, I owe Him my righteousness, but I can't do it, or you're lying about it, no, there's no God, I don't believe, either way we owe Him our life. Either way we should do what's right, and only Jesus did what was right for us. 
And so because of what Jesus did, being born under the law so that we might receive, it says adoption as sons, we're given that status. And so adoption as sons is the phrase we translate as sonship. It's the status. I was a third-born child in my family. Some of you are first-born sons. Um, some of you are uh, first-born daughters. What, whatever your physical status is, spiritually, we're all given the status of an heir who would inherit the throne. We're all given that status through Christ, right? We're given that firstborn son status. Whether you're boy or girl, firstborn, thirdborn, tenthborn, whatever, we're given that status. We are the heirs of the king. We're given that status, this uh, objective, objective status, and then there's a subjective feeling of it, right? And so some of us, we're more thinkers, and we want to focus on the objective status, and some of us are more feelers, and we want to focus more on the experience. And Paul says both are very important, and they're connected, right? So the actual work that Jesus accomplished objectively gives us the status that we should trust in of being sons, being accepted by God. And then we have an experience of that through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us to actually feel it. The Spirit helps us to feel it and go, I am a son. He loves me. So my question for you is, do you, do you feel that? Do you recognize that he does love you? Stott says, so the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. So that's why who Christ is is so important. That's why it's important to push back against cults that would give different definitions of who Christ is. Because all of it is important to the story of a God who took on flesh to come rescue us from ourselves. But then we also need to recognize that that reality, objective reality of who He is, it gives us that objective status, can be experienced. It can be felt by us. Um, I have a picture here of uh, getting in with a access security card. I was with a friend the other day at my kid's school, and normally we have to like punch a button and there's like a little video and they have to figure out if you're a bad guy or a good guy before they can let you in. Do you all have schools or jobs like that where you have like a little access code? Anybody? You can raise your hand in here. It's okay. No one will judge you. Um, and so I was, I was trying to get in the school the other day, and my buddy was with me, and he's a teacher, so I just got complete access, right? He just waved his little magnetic magic wand thing and the door opened right just pretty cool i was able to just go right in i didn't have to wait and have someone else determine my status if i was the right kind of person that they wanted coming into this building i just got to go in because this guy had the right status and that's what we have in christ we have his status we have complete access to the father that's what hebrews tells us we can approach the throne of grace with with boldness we can come before Him because He loves us. Christ teaches us to pray that way in the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray my, my Father in heaven. Now in the Old Testament, there are references to God as Father. There's like two or three in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, that's how you should relate to God as your Father. And so I hope you recognize how scandalous that is, how incredible that is, the kind of access you have there. God is a Father. That means, yes, He's a little bit big and scary, but he's also tender and he delights in you. Both of those realities. Some of you might have had one of those and not the other growing up. And again, I want to reiterate that whoever your earthly father was, the ways in which he failed, you know that because you know what a father should be like. Ephesians tells us that all families on earth are, are named. They get their identity from who God is as father. He, he comes first as father, and then our earthly reality is, is a shadow of that. 
So if you had a great father or if you had a father that failed you completely, I want you to know that the God of the universe is the true father. He's a, he's a good father. He's a perfect father who both delights in you and accepts you. So you, can, you can run into his presence when you have a good day. You can run into his presence not because of your good day, but because he loves you. And when you have a bad day, you can run into his presence not because you've cleaned up your bad day, but because of what Christ has done for you. So whether you have a good day or a bad day, you can run into your Father's presence because He loves you, because He is your Father. And that's what makes us Father-centered. That's the experience of sonship. And it says the Holy Spirit helps us to know that internally, subjectively. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba would be the Aramaic term for like Papa or Daddy. That's scandalous. That's intimate. That's close. That's tender. He loves you. He cares for you. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So whether you grew up on the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks, the side of the tracks you grew up on are not going to get you into the Father's presence. It's what the Father has done for you through Jesus. That's what invites you into His presence. He's pursued us in love through Christ. It's because of what He has done, not because of what we have done. And this should affect our prayer posture. It says that the Spirit helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. In our uh, call to worship, we've been reading from the book of Romans in Romans 8 where it says that the the Spirit groans for us in, in ways that words cannot express, right? The Spirit intercedes for us in groanings that words cannot express. The idea is that the Spirit helps us to experience this reality that we wouldn't necessarily normally know how to experience because of whatever daddy baggage we have. We can fully experience who God is as Father and come into His presence because the Spirit helps us in that way. Helps us to subjectively experience this status that is objectively given to us because of what Christ has done. So my question is, is just real simple. Do you pray? Do you pray? And do you pray thinking... God will only hear me if I use the right uh, magical arrangement of words? Or do you pray knowing that he's a daddy that loves you? And you can come into his presence fumbling and not sure what to say, knowing that the Spirit will help you. Do you pray? He wants to talk to you. It pleases the Father to give good gifts to you. It pleases the Father to help you. And, And just like with your children, sometimes you wait until they ask you to help. He waits to help you. He, he wants to help you. He wants to be asked. He wants to be spoken to because He loves you. The last thing we see is we're supposed to grow in our sonship and we see kind of how we grow in our sonship here. And, and the big idea that's kind of mind-blowing is that Paul equates um, religious or even, let me say this more clearly, biblical legalism. He equates biblical legalism with idolatry. Okay? Biblical legalism, so some of you think, well, maybe I'm kind of a legalist, but you know, that's not that big a deal. Paul says it's idolatry. Paul says biblical legalism is idolatry. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. He says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay, so again, he's talking to pagans, and they worship, you know, whatever the spirit in the tree, or they worship Zeus, or whatever it is that they worship. And he's saying, before you knew the real God, uh, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not really gods. Paul has the same kind of phraseology in 1 Corinthians where he says, um, idols aren't really gods. 
And to some degree, there's like this demonic power behind the idols and the false gods of this world. But even then, even if it's like a real spiritual force happening there, it's not really a god, right? So Paul's always quick to say, well, yeah, there are some kind of spiritual forces in the world, but they're not real gods because God is the only real god. And so that kind of helps clarify a little bit the language of the Bible. Throughout the Bible, you'll hear phrases like, there are other gods, and then you'll hear other language where there's, there are no other gods, there's only the true God. And that's kind of the balance there, right? There are spiritual forces in the world that are sometimes called gods, but they're not real gods. Only God is the real God. That's what Paul's getting to here. And we, we have enslaved ourselves to these false gods. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, which is a great little uh, editorial, right? Paul's saying, we have the experience of coming to know God, and I've received Christ into my life, and we have this very me-centered focus. And Paul says, well, actually, God, God came to know you, right? He, he hunted you down. He grabbed hold of your heart. So now, you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So this is where he's clarifying that when he referred to the elementary principles before that we could think of as the atoms and the building blocks of the universe and the elements, he's saying there are spiritual forces at work there. There are spiritual forces at work there. These are these false gods, which again, he said they're not really gods, but they're these spiritual forces at work. It is idolatry. We're worshiping false gods. How can you turn back again to them? He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's saying here, you observe uh, days and months and seasons and years. He's re- referring to the feast days and the holidays of the Jewish calendar. Remember earlier, it's been clear that circumcision was a big part of this, that basically the Jews have come to the pagan Christians, so Christians that didn't grow up Jewish, and they're saying, you know what, it's really not enough for you to just trust in Christ. You also have to observe all the regulations of the Jewish law. And then God will like you. Like right now, God kind of likes you through Christ, but he'll really, really like you if you keep all these other regulations. And Paul's saying, no, no, that's not how it works. And he says, it's like you're turning back to the false gods that you served before. Paul's saying, before you studied the spirit, or you served the spirits in the trees, you served Zeus, whoever these false gods that you served, and you turned from that. And you came to trust in Christ who saved you. And then the Jews come along and say, you've got to keep all these other regulations. He says by turning to that biblical legalism of keeping the months and days and the years and thinking you need to be circumcised and thinking that you're not fully accepted as a son through Christ, but that you need to take on the culture of the Jews to be fully accepted. He says that's like turning back to those false gods. Do you see that connection? So he's saying following biblical legalism is idolatry. It's turning back to the false gods. So don't do that. That's not the way to grow. The big temptation for us is to think, God's accepted me through Christ. He loves me. I'm having a good day. He loves me. And then we have a bad day. And we think, I guess he doesn't like me today because I kind of messed up. And we, we start to do that again and again. And then we start to look outside of Christ for some other method to stop having so many bad days. Right? We start to think, how can I, how can I break out of this cycle? How can I get God to really love me? Because I know he can't love me because I've messed up. How could a God love someone like me that messed up? And we're forgetting that gospel that we first met God through. The, the gospel in the first place was a gospel of you can't earn your way into his presence. You need what Christ has done for you. You're a sinner that needs the death and resurrection of Christ 
to give you the status of sons. And so when you mess up again, don't, don't think that that system changed. When you sin, recognize, you know what? My forgiveness is in Christ. My sonship is in Christ. The way that you grow is recognizing that Christ is the answer, not keeping some regulation, not joining some club, not keeping feast days, not keeping Sabbath days. Now, it's possible to be a, a member of your culture and worship Jesus, right? The problem is when we say being a member of my culture is what makes me acceptable to God, right? So there is, there is this category of people we would call them Messianic Jews, right, that actually observe feast days and uh, Sabbaths and they, they do some of these Old Testament rituals, right? If they know that their status as sons is granted to them through Christ and they're just doing these rituals because they have the freedom to, because they were born Jews and, you know, they enjoy it and it's fun, that's, that's great. But if they're doing it to be more accepted by God, Paul would say that's wrong, that's anti-gospel. Do you, do you see the difference? And that's why it gets confusing and, and why it really becomes kind of a hard issue for us. It's hard to judge that externally. We can think, I'm cleaning up my life, I'm doing these things, I'm recovering, I'm putting aside these addictions so that God will love me. Paul says that's anti-gospel. Or we can say, because God loves me, I trust him and I want to do what he says. Because he loves me, I want to stop relying on my flesh. I want to put away this addiction. I want to start trusting him more deeply and more deeply. So there's a way of keeping the law that's a response to God's love, knowing we're accepted by him. And there's a way of keeping the law that's anti-gospel that's saying, I can keep it enough so that he'll accept me today. Paul says, don't turn back. He says, when you turn back from recognizing that he accepts you, and tomorrow when you have a bad day, again, he accepts you because of what Christ has done, you're turning away from the gospel. You're turning away from Christ himself. I have a chart here that I've found helpful in the growth process to help us unpack this. I got this from a book uh, by Bob Thune and Will Walker called The Gospel-Centered Life. Some of you have done that in small groups together. It's a really good material. But this chart right here is my favorite thing out of the book. Um, There's a top arrow that says, Growing Knowledge of God's Holiness. So if you're maturing as a follower of Christ, you're going to have a growing awareness and a growing knowledge that God is awesome and big and holy, right? That makes sense logically. And you know what happens if you have a genuine growing knowledge of His holiness, you'll have a growing awareness of your smallness and your sin and your brokenness, right? And so that's the bottom line, growing knowledge of sinfulness. And the gospel says there's only one way to fill that gap. That's Jesus. And so if you're genuinely experiencing a growing knowledge of God's holiness and you genuinely experience a growing knowledge of your own sinfulness, then only a bigger, broader, more beautiful love and grace from God can fill that gap. Does that make sense? The cross will begin to to appear more incredible, more awesome, more beautiful. We all start that way, right? We all start with Christ knowing I'm a sinner and need a Savior. I, I can't. I can't fix my own sin. I need a Savior to save me. But we should have a growing awareness. That's how we grow. We can't grow by shrinking God's standards of holiness, right? That's part of what legalism does. We shrink down His standards and we say, they're standards that are meetable by me. I can meet His standards. They're just these regulations or they're just these feast days or they're just these rituals and I can do that. I can own that and earn His love. That's really shrinking His his standards of holiness. And it's also reducing the reality of your own sin. You don't recognize how deep your sin goes. 
Same thing really applies if, if you're just pursuing pleasure. If you're giving up on religion altogether and you're just pursuing pleasure, you're reducing God's holiness. You're saying God in reality is just equal to my desires, right? The true happiness is my pleasure. You're shrinking down the God of the universe to your own pleasure and your own desires. And then you're having to reduce the reality of your own sinfulness. Now, one thing I want to clarify, because this happens sometimes in places where the Bible is taught, people see a chart like this and you know what they come away with? They think the way I need to grow is by focusing on my sinfulness, right? I know like in your own hearts right now, there's some of you that are thinking that. And I would say, no, that's not how it works. Focus on the top line. Read the Bible. Study who God is. Recognize how awesome he is. And you will naturally become aware that you're a sinner, okay? Don't focus on that. Don't whip yourself. Don't beat yourself up over that. That's just going to happen naturally. And then what you focus on is how big God's grace is. Focus on how big God's grace is. The more you focus on how big his holiness is, the more you're going to be aware of how small you are, how sinful you are, and focus on how big his grace is. You're going to have a growing appreciation then for the gospel and for what Christ has accomplished. And the amazing thing about all of this is, is then when you grow in your sonship, what does that produce in our life? Paul will say later in Galatians that it produces the fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. And what that means is we start to look like Jesus. We start to actually love other people. We start to actually love other people. Not to get something from them, right? But because we're loved. That's gospel-motivated love. We actually love other people because God loves us. So we begin to be like Christ, in Philippians 2, it says, gave up his rights as the king of the universe, as the son of God, and came to us to love us. We actually love others. We serve others. Now, we, all, we do it in different ways, right? We have different gifts. We have different personalities. We have different skills. But our job is to love others, to become like Christ. The first Christians, uh, or the first time Christians were called Christians, it was, a lot of people think, used as an insult. It's like calling people little Christs. Like, oh, look at these little junior Christs. But as followers of Christ, that, that, that's actually what we want, right? We want to look like him. We want to look like this person that's so confident of the Father's love that he served others, that he loved others. That, that would be the goal. That we would know that we have a Father-centered identity. That we would allow the Father to tell us who we are. That we, when, when we get up in the morning or when we're going to bed at night, we wouldn't be completely overrun with all of our failures or all the ways other people have betrayed us, but we would remember that the Father loves us. That He's made us His child. That He's come after us to grab hold of us and make us His. Let me pray for us. God, we thank You that You do love us, that You pursue us, that You've chased after us. Uh, we pray that You would help us to remember this. Um, and God, we just thank You for the security that we have in You. God, we pray, uh, as Paul does, that our labor would not be in vain, but that we would cling to the gospel. We would cling to you, trusting that we belong to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.